I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? And welcome, friends. We are back with Theology Unplugged. I am Michael Patton. I am one of your three hosts. Uh, we got three of us here once again. Sam has joined us. And, of course, uh, Tim is here with us as well in studio at the Credo House in Edmond, Oklahoma. Stop by if you can. It's good to be here. I've got my um, my coffee here. I don't call it anything particular, but I'm trying to come up with a name for it. And I just thought whenever Sam came in, we ought to call it the Sam Storm. I think that'd be yeah. cool. Do you, do you even drink coffee? Oh, yeah. You do? Have you ever had one of the Luther lattes or anything? No. No? No. That's not good. They're better than ever. Are they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you I have, but my, I look at yours and I don't think anything has ice in it qualifies as coffee. Well, yeah, I that's agree true. to myself personally. That's true, but it, but it is good stuff. I looked for the blender today and it wasn't here because I was going to make, what are they called? When we blend them together, at least frappuccino, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a Luther frapp- frappuccino or something yeah. like that. Yeah, we've been using the blender for teaching illustrations, so it's sidelined right now. Oh, is that, is that our blender? Well, yes and no. I think it's an off-radio conversation. Okay, That's fine. <laughs> I thought it might be interesting to our audience. You know, <laughs> what our blenders are like? No, uh, but we've been the blender's been coming in big time handy with uh, Eutychianism. That's right. And, and tell us where we use the blender and why. Yeah, so we use our blender in our theology boot camp, and we use it to communicate the. Uh, we have four sessions Listen of forty-five minutes apiece. And what we do when we teach, for 45 minutes, we teach on the person of Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis has said that God becoming a man is the greatest mystery of all the universe. And so what we do is we use an apple and an orange, the orange representing uh, a man and the apple representing God, to basically communicate the main Christological heresies that have existed in the history of the church. And so with uh, Apollinarianism, we cut out on the inside of the orange so that the orange is just a shell, and it represents God wearing a man suit or God in a bod. Then with Nestorianism, we take the orange and the apple and we duct tape them together, and that represents that that inside, basically that that Jesus the man... And Nestorianism is good, bad... It's bad because what it is is it's not they're not the same consciousness. They're, it, it's almost as if when Jesus is walking on water, that's God. When when Jesus is thirsty, that's man. And it, it, it's as if possibly at the baptism or whenever that that the man Jesus and the God Jesus kind of shook hands and said, "Hey, let's jump inside this body. Let's, uh, let's partner uh, up. Let's together partner up for a while, and we'll we'll do this thing together. You can act at times. Okay, and the blender. Where does that come in? The blender is Eutychianism. So it's the f- most fun where where you put the orange and the apple in the blender, blend them up, and what Eutychianism says that when when the when God and man join together, that they mixed into a third substance. And the reason that that's bad is because you no longer have man that you can identify with. And like Hebrews says that he's a man in every way that we are and we can come to him with all of our pain, sorrow, anxiety. That no longer exists because we have this blended substance. And then no longer is it God who is saving us because 
you can't distinguish God anymore because it's this third substance. Human and divine come together and form a humine in the blender. Yeah, so you no longer have man or God, and so we lose salvation all representation. Is, yeah, no representation. All right, good no stuff. Salvation. Well, that, that's yeah. our boot camp, folks. Our boot camp that we have began offering. A lot of you all have been inquiring about, about boot camps. We've scheduled lots of boot camps so far all over the country that we are starting to... Mm-hmm. To uh, go to churches and maybe on a Saturday you can do a theology boot camp three to four hours where you introduce your congregation to just uh, the key elements of Christian theology. That's correct. And we, we're also doing private boot camps as well. So we had a large church in our area. The entire staff, all their pastors, all their staff went through it together just to say, hey, let's let's instead of this church goes to a movie together every month usually. And they said, hey, that money that we usually spend just going to a movie, let's instead come and for four hours to talk about the greatest things in the universe, really. Um, and so, so those have been really fun too. So if you're a pastor or an elder or on staff and you want to have a staff retreat where or a team building time where you just say hey let's just make sure we all believe the same thing and that we we really are aware of these same critical issues in the history of the church that we love doing the private boot camps as well www.biblebootcamp.com is that right that's wrong oh, it's uh, okay. <laughs> it's theologybootcamp.com all right i get those mixed up every time that's okay Okay, well, <clears throat> that's a quick introduction to uh, the boot camps there, but we are going to move on to our topic of the hour and um, continue our discussion on evangelicalism. Last time we, well, last three times we have talked about evangelicalism and trying to trying to get our arms around something that is a, a pretty hard term to define. And usually, whenever people talk about evangelicalism, they're they, they've got their own predetermined thoughts in their mind. Just like any term that we use will be uh, misrepresented by the people who use it and also by the media. Uh, and, and what we're trying to do, I mean, we're not really here trying to save a term or anything, but we're just trying to define it because a lot of us still define ourselves as evangelicals and find that at least the best, if not perfect, way to describe a particular variety within Christianity. We've given some characteristics uh, last few programs, but... You know, what's interesting to me is since we started doing our program, how much discussion has been going on about evangelicalism. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but a lot of people are beginning to write about this once again. You know how topics come and go. This seems to be the topic of the hour on the web. You not only got Scott McKnight doing a series on this, but you have over at pathios.com. A, a extensive, very extensive series on the future of evangelicalism where we've got about 30 authors that are represented and they're all telling about the future of evangelicalism. What is evangelicalism? And I, I've, I've tried to keep up on this because I began, when we began this series, I began to do a blog post, a series of blogs called Will the Real Evangelical Please Stand Up? And in this, uh, I, I stopped because I saw all these other uh, series that had begun, and I wanted to read and interact with them. But as I've tried to interact with them, uh, you've got people uh, everywhere from D.A. Carson to Scott McKnight to uh, to Timothy, who runs the Pathios Evangelical Porter, po- Portal, and they're all defining it differently. And they all see it differently, and it's been it, it's added more confusion that 
to me says, gosh, I mean, we, we just don't really know what evangelicalism is, mm. even evangelicals. And we've all got different ideas on what it is and especially what its future is. Some of them are calling the demise of evangelicalism. Some of them are saying evangelicalism has already died. Some of them are saying evangelicalism can't die. And, and I think it all started sometime uh, last year whenever Michael Spencer wrote his... his uh, 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 article that was in the Christian Science Monitor that talked about the future death of evangelicalism, predicting its death within 10 years. And so this is really, that was really about the future of evangelicalism. And maybe we'll touch on that as we get into this, but I want to try to take some of what we have done so far in this series and, and and summarize it so that you guys, uh, we're not saying this is Theology Unplugged, and so we're not trying to give a good packaged version. It's a conversation that we're entering, a conversation that you're entering by being here. But at the same time, I think that there are certain characteristics that we can definitely say this is what evangelicalism is, and I want to discuss some of these characteristics. Now, guys, you guys, we talked a little bit about this chart that I have up here. And this chart, I'll, I'll put it up for everybody to read that is listening to this or to see that it, uh, whenever you are uh, listening to this broadcast. It can be found on the blog as well if you look for Will the Real Evangelical Please Stand Up. But it's a circle chart. And on this, I've got three key things that evangelicalism must have. Number one, orthodoxy. And I've got that at the top. And there's a reason why I have that at the top, because I think it is the key element. It's the foundational element. Uh, number two is orthopraxy, which means right practice. Orthodoxy means right belief. We've got to have certain beliefs that we hold to. We've got to have a certain practice that we hold to. But also, I've got something called, and maybe you haven't heard of this before, but it's called orthopathy. Orthopathy, And I don't believe evangelicalism can be evangelicalism, at least in the way that I'm attempting to understand it and, and define it, without a right attitude, orthopathy, uh, a right attitude towards things. And so if you see this here, the first thing that I want to start with, and I want your evaluation of this, is orthodoxy. And whenever I say this, I'm, I'm saying this is what I believe that evangelicalism must have as far as their beliefs, as far as our beliefs in order to be evangelicals. I've got a belief in the Nicene Creed, which essentially I'm saying the Trinity, right? Uh, a belief That's in, right, Michael. Thanks. Oh. Okay. We're, we're just uh, nodding here. <laughs> <laughs> a, a belief in the definition of Chalcedon or um, a, a, a firm adherence to Christ's humanity and divinity. Uh, and I've got two of the five solas of the Reformation, sola fide and sola scriptura. Uh, salvation is by faith alone, and the scripture alone is our final authority. I would say if you have those, those are the center doctrinal issues within evangelicalism. What do you all think? Am I missing something? Did I put too much in there? I'll save the best for last, so I'll let Sam go last. But my gut reaction would be, I feel like that's more of a discipleship chart than an evangelicalism chart. 
perhaps. I'm not saying evaluate the whole chart yet. No, okay, just the just the circle is what I'm talking about. Okay. So just the circle. Yeah, I'm wondering. So if someone doesn't have a right attitude, can they not be considered a part of evangelicalism? And what I would say is, I think there are a lot of evangelicals that have rotten attitudes in the way that they discuss orthodoxy with each other, the way that they enter into things. I mean, that's a, a I, I would say, just kind of an arrogant attitude is many times labeled to fundamentalism. And I mean, I would consider myself a lot, I mean, coming from a seminary that's associated with, with fundamentalism, all three of us, uh, mainly uh, it's history and stuff. I mean, I would say that I would, I would not... S- I don't know. I, I wrestle a little bit with orthopathy and orthopraxy being a, a necessary ingredient of evangelicalism because that seems to me, especially orthopathy, seems to be pretty subjective. Of uh, you know, it's hard to gauge attitudes and uh, and things like that. And so that's just my gut reaction. First, I'm not saying that that's that this is bad, but I'm saying I, I almost wonder if just orthodoxy for me. I mean, the ETS statement is just a statement of orthodoxy, mm-hmm. not orthopraxy or pathy. Uh, so that would be my first gut reaction. But I'd say, man, I think this is a great circle for discipleship of any believer. But I wonder if it's uh, necessary for evangelicalism. What I'm saying is that these are evangelical distinctives, I believe, whenever they're all together, not whenever they're separate. If you, if you take away, let's say you have the right orthodoxy, okay, and you agree with the Nicene Creed, Creed of Chalcedon, Sola Fida, Sola Scriptura, but you take away engagement, you take away that, you know, we, we stay away from engaging in, in society, the government, or, or any type of uh, social issues. And you take away the orthopathy, which is uh, the attitude. You know, you're, you're not humble in your approach to things. You're not merciful in your approach to things. Then I say you move more towards a fundamentalist type attitude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying here? Mm-hmm. And so, you, you t- whenever you have the right attitude, if you miss the right attitude, whenever you have uh, these these doctrinal foundations, you could have a very strong doctrinal foundation, but you just have the wrong uh, way of thinking about it. You are um, uh, exclusive in everything that you believe. You don't have a sense to where there is a grouping of non-essentials to where other people can disagree with you on this. That's the attitude part of it. If you don't have that type of attitude, I mean, I I just say you don't have evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Sam? Well, my first thought is, uh, given the the head orthodoxy, uh, I'm looking at at your chart here where you have head, hands, and heart, Obviously, it would seem to me, your understanding of evangelicalism is that it is a, for lack of a better way of putting it, a subset of Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's not synonymous with Christianity, but is a family within the broader Christian community. Yeah, not only that, I would say for me, I, I, I would be comfortable saying that I think evangelicalism, at least ideally, represents the best of. Not right. perfect, but the best of. Right. Because there are obviously people, at least I would think there are people um, who would uh, not necessarily be able to affirm sola scriptura that we would not say for that reason are not Christians, but we would say for that reason are not evangelicals. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm all right with the uh, with what you have included in there. It's just interesting when you think about it in, in today's world who that would, ex- who that would exclude. Mm. Um, and uh, that, 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 
was very interesting. I'm just thinking, for example, of uh, uh, Phyllis Tickle and her book, The Great Emergence. Mm. Um, and she's very much a, an advocate for the whole emerging church phenomenon. And she explicitly repudiates sola scriptura mm. in her book. Um, certainly, you know, Roman Catholics would not be able to affirm sola fide. Um, but yet, I think there are Christian Catholics. Um, that's, of course, an issue for another time and another debate. Um, yeah, and there may be some Christian Catholics who would like to assume the title evangelicalism. Yes. Or evangelical. Oh, yeah. And, they, of course, they wouldn't affirm either sola fide or sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you would uh, a case could be made that they could still be born again. Sure. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's just I'm just thinking in terms of how we envision evangelicalism within the broader Christian community, um, the universal church. And I think you're right. I think it was J.I. Packer who used the language that you used, uh, that it's the best expression. Um, uh, it's one family within the, the broader community that is most consistent with the overall revelation in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as orthopraxy and orthopathy, um, I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. Uh, I think we would just have to be more specific. Are there specific practices? Mm-hmm. Let's take orthopraxy. Um, are there specific practices that would uh, be required? So, for example, um, let's say there's a physician um, who attends your church and he affirms uh, and I see in Chalcedon and Sola Fide and Sola Scriptura, but he also performs abortions in his office. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's a practice that many would consider to be inconsistent with evangelicalism, but would his theological affirmations, uh, on the one hand, trump his orthopraxy, or would his orthopraxy, in that case, uh, with regard to abortion, or maybe... Um, you know, you could you could extend it to other ethical issues, uh, other behavioral um, expressions. Would one of those necessarily exclude him from evangelicalism, even though he affirms all the basic theological truths? Well, see, in my chart, at least, in the argument that I would make, the hands, the key things in the hands are family values, evangelicalism, acts of mercy, and social engagement. And if you don't have those, let's say... Or you, evangelism. You said evangelism. Yeah, excuse me, evangelism. Uh, family values. Let's say that you have that situation. I would say that that guy is not affirming the fam- family values that is part of true. historic true. Uh, evangelism. I would, I would agree. As well, let's say you have a church that has all of these affirmations, but yet is open and inclusive, even celebratory with regards to gays and gay marriage or, mm-hmm. or um, as a lifestyle. I would say that that ex- would be excluded from this because we have traditionally defined ourselves with family values. And so we have taken that part of historic orthopraxy and, and, and included it within evangelicalism. But you would also, it would seem, then exclude um, early uh, 20th century fundament- American fundamentalism from this family because they were not socially engaged and they did not really emphasize acts of mercy. Exactly. I would say that there is a separationist mentality um, that, not again, like Sam said, doesn't mean you're not saved, but if you're someone who comes to society, and, and, and let's say with either the gospel uh, proper, you say, you know, it's a private thing for me. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I believe all of these things, but it's very private. It's something I keep to myself, and, and that's not part of my aspiration as a Christian to spread the gospel. It's not part of my aspiration to engage in cultural transformation. It's a very private thing for me. It's something I believe very dearly, and I trust in Jesus. Certainly, that type of person could be saved, but can that type of person be an evangelical? I would say, well, not really, at least in the way that I'm defining it here. And I only I think the largest struggle for that is where's the boundary? You know, we have pretty clear boundaries with orthodoxy, but you know, if you allow an AA meeting at your church, have you fulfilled the requirement of social engagement? Uh, you know, where is that boundary? Do you have to have? Uh, do you have to do? You know, what are the practices? Practically, well, I'd say first it's philosophical. It's philosophical and theological before anything else. It's yeah. not saying that anybody has the courage to get up there and, and and you know share with their neighbor, but there's the conviction there that we should. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm just wondering if I, I guess I'm in more inclined to personally define evangelicalism um, theologically, and then within that theological camp, the question becomes to what degree are people consistent or inconsistent with what they affirm? It seem, um, uh, well, I mean, it'd be like Jesus saying, which one of the sons was the right one? The one that said, no, I'm not going to do that, and then goes and does it, mm-hmm. or the one who says, yeah, I'll do that, and doesn't go and do it. It's the first one. So a church who philosophically could say, yeah, we're all about social engagement. We've just never done it. Yeah. And then, as opposed to a church that says, you know what, we just don't feel like that's our role in as a church. But when you look at mm-hmm. it, they're doing social engagement mm-hmm. all the time. Or you have, a, obviously, uh, within the Reformed tradition, um, hyper-Calvinists who certainly would qualify uh, theologically in terms of orthodoxy, but uh, would not be evangelistic. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. does that exclude them then from the family of evangelicalism? Um, likely, in all, in all likelihood, they are probably not very socially engaged either. Uh, they are very judgmental, so the non-judgmental part would, under orthopathy would not necessarily apply to them. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much uh, doctrinal humility there is there. So um, it just, I agree with Tim a bit. It seems a bit subjective and a little slippery at this point once you move out of, you know, what are the theological parameters into practice, into feeling, into interpersonal relationships. Where does somebody cross the line mm-hmm. and thus would exclude themselves? And, of course, I think the fact that we're, trying to pin that down is one of the reasons why people are saying this is an, a useless di- discussion. Mm-hmm. Why, if you can't be more definitive and you can't, um, if you've got an evangelicalism and you can't even agree on who's in and who's out or what criteria determine who's in and who's out, is it a useless term and should we just abandon it? Yeah, yeah. And I think that this, you know, when we're discussing these types of things, it's something that that helps us to look back historically. It helps us to look back. One of the things that I, I feel like whenever we, we look at these things is we've got to, um, uh, we, we've got to allow for, uh, I, and Sam, I want you to discuss this a little bit, but I think we need to allow for, you see in the center of my circle above the cross there, is this idea of simper reformanda. And whenever we talk about simple reformanda, it is a term that means always reforming. 
And I think that that is a key distinction within evangelicalism. Whenever I say always reforming, that that's a really hard one to to define as well. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that evangelicalism hasn't made camp yet, and we don't plan on making camp. And, and what I mean by that is that we have not uh, come to the conclusion we are the best, we are perfect, we 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 don't have any room to move forward, to grow, to reform, to to um, uh, take our understanding and even have a better understanding than we did before. We're not uh, on a journey and suddenly we stop, make camp, decide to build our walls and say, hey, you can come in. If you're outside of these walls, sorry. But we are on a journey. Now, forgive me because this is coming in the context of kind of the emerging church journey, but I feel like evangelicalism is on a journey with a destination. But we have yet to arrive. And so we will always be reforming. Now, whenever I say always reforming, I'm taking from the Reformation, right? Uh, not only did we reform the church, as the reformers would put it, but we are always reforming. What does Semper Reformanda mean, and is that a distinction within evangelicalism? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, I think, though, you would also agree, would you not, that there are certain things that... Um, are not reforming. I mean, you wouldn't, uh, when you look up into orthodoxy, you wouldn't say that your understanding of sola fide is always reforming. Not necessarily. Here's what I would say is that it can develop to the point where we have a better understanding of it, a better grasp, a better systematic relation to other things. But the, the, the DNA of sola fide is there. The core truth remains unchanging. Yes. Non-reforming. But it can expand in the sense that we can grow in our understanding of it, its implications, uh, maybe new insights um, that, that before we did not have. Because we wanted, you want to differentiate Semper Reformanda, always reforming, from uh, some of the so-called progressive mm. evangelicals. Let's just throw out an example. Um, and I don't know how many of our listeners will know this name. I'm assuming you all know that Clark Pinnock died this week. Uh, Clark Pinnock, uh, a very uh, famous individual, famous theologian, highly, highly controversial within evangelicalism. Of course, some people say, no, he moved beyond it because he abandoned some of the the, the fundamental truths uh, that would come under orthodoxy. Um, He has been referred to as the premier progressive evangelical. Uh, you know, began as a um, as a, a, a affirming inerrancy. Wrote some excellent books. His book Biblical Revelation is still superb. We actually used read it at Dallas when I was there. Mm. Um, did some excellent work in apologetics um, in, in a number of other areas, and then eventually abandoned inerrancy, moved away from any kind of reformed theology into a uh, classical Arminianism, and then eventually moved beyond classical Arminianism into open theism. But at the same time, uh, you would never have found a more gentle, loving, affirming man. It talks about orthopathy. Clark was a wonderful human being. You just loved being around him. He was uh, welcoming. He was nonjudgmental. He was humble. Uh, he certainly fulfilled all the qualifications under your orthopraxy. Um, he was uh, socially engaging. He was evangelistic, affirmed family values. Um, but there were some questionable matters about the orthodoxy. So mm-hmm. here you have 
a man who is, uh, would fulfill certainly two thirds of your, uh, three, but would come short in, uh, some of the orthodoxy, uh, or, or the, the theological dimensions. And so the debate has been, was Clark Pennington evangelical? I mean, there was a, as you recall, um, uh, a major move within um, membership of ETS to exclude him for his theological views. Now, it didn't work. Mm. Uh, he, he survived membership uh, and continued to come and continued to participate. Yeah, I saw him last time I was there. Yeah. So somebody such as Clark would be a, a good person to evaluate uh, in terms of uh, the way you envision evangelicalism. Was he an evangelical? Well, certainly, let me make cl- I'm clear. I believe Clark Pinnock is in heaven right now with the Lord. Yeah. I believe he knew Jesus as his Savior uh, and rejoiced that he's now with the Lord. Uh, but uh, where within the family of faith would he be placed? Mm-hmm. And, and, and people like him. And I would say, you know, again, whenever we're talking about trying to pin these things down to, to definites and putting up the markers everywhere, I'm not sure how to do that. But what I would say is the more the head or the orthodoxy gets blurred, the more you can just look like, uh, you know, a, a classic kind of social gospel liberal type mm-hmm. to where you've got the heart, you've got the hands. But you lack the orthodoxy, you lack the message, you lack the foundation, you lack the, the, uh, theological, um, uh, way in which we understand our faith, and then you have moved away. And so, I mean, blur the head out, and you've got liberalism. You blur the heart out, you've got fundamentalism. Or blur the heart and the hands out, and you've got fundamentalism. But the reason why I put all of these and, and was tried to at least be very careful in the things that I thought were the essentials is because I believe that all of these have to be present. Otherwise, you do have one of those other variations. However, Clark Pinnock, you know, the, the, his big deal, at least while I was uh, involved in the issue, uh, not only had to do with the eternality of God, the knowledge of God, what does God know? He said, well, God doesn't know the future because the future can't be known. Therefore, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he, he was not an evangelical. And then the issue came up of inerrancy, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. well, that was the technicality sure. that he was going to be kicked out of ETS on is if you deny God knows the future, can his prophetic word, whenever he proclaims the future, be inerrant? Maybe he's not sure. Maybe he failed to predict the future. And I guess that would bring up the question, because you notice here, I've got sola scriptura, but I don't have inerrancy in there. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know, and that's one of the questions that I was going to ask. We're out of time here, mm-hmm. and during the next broadcast, we'll bring this back up and pick up and say, do you have to believe in inerrancy to be an evangelical? What? How? How... High does your view of Scripture, your doctrine of Scripture, have to be within evangelicalism to qualify? And then I want to continue the discussion on Semper Reformanda as well. Okay? Sounds good. You bet. You have been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. These broadcasts are made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For more information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit our homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.